Amen. Well, good morning, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, and it's a very strange experience, I suppose, because I, uh, yes, as, as many of us are experiencing, it's a strange time that we're in. Um, today we're going to, we, I've been asked, to, while he's asked me to come and share a bit about work and speaking about work. And so uh, that's obviously something that I have uh, a lot of experience and reflections on, being working with workers in the city, trying to help uh, workers think about what they're how their faith impacts their work and also how they share their faith in that, in that workspace. So we're going to talk, think a bit about work today, and particularly uh, work and identity. And the, the late, great Stephen Hawking, the physicist, once said, work gives you meaning and purpose and life is empty without it. So I'll say that again, work gives you meaning and purpose and life is empty without it. Now, I don't know what you make of that quote, but there are ways in which our uh, work it can indeed give us meaning and purpose in our lives. But the events of the past two or three weeks have really highlighted the big problem with the second part of this quote. Life is empty without it. So is life empty without work? So what happens if we, we lose our jobs? Is life then empty? Meaningless? Purposeless? Or what happens if we retire or or we get sick and we can't work anymore? Is life really empty without work? Because there will be times and seasons in our lives when we will not have paid work. And this has been the stark reality for many in our world in just these past few weeks. Now this is most likely, unfortunately, going to happen again, but during the Uh, This is perhaps one of the reasons that many people committed suicide during the global financial crisis of 2008. I heard uh, a very successful businessman who was near the top of his global firm. He lost his job, couldn't handle it and killed himself. Perhaps it was because he really believed that life was empty without work. Perhaps he couldn't handle the shame of being a failure or of being unemployed. Yet the Christian message offers something incredibly powerful, profound and useful to respond to these ideas. The Christian faith offers one key thing that helps us to respond to failure, weakness and disappointment. I meet with workers all the time in the city and I count this as the number one reason for disappointment, frustration and dissatisfaction with work. It's the one thing that I think is the most significant issue facing workers of all types here in Melbourne today. It's this one thing that when you appreciate this and understand it fully, I think it will transform your life and your witness in your workplace and your lives. And in fact, this one foundational thing will revolutionise your entire Christian life. It will transform our words, our witness, our attitude to work, our behaviour and it will bring glory to God. So what is it? What's this one thing? Well, it's not a technique, it's not a tract, it's not special knowledge. It's the answer to the most important question you'll ever answer. Who are you? I think we're facing an identity crisis at work, a crisis of who I am at work. 
Now, remember when you used to go to parties and functions, because I mean, obviously we can't do that these days, but when you used to go to those things and someone would ask you a question, what's generally the first question that was asked in a conversation? So, what do you do? Now, it's interesting that a question of activity, we often respond with, a, with an answer of identity. So, when someone says, so what do you do? You don't say, well, I fill out forms and write reports. You say, I'm a banker. Or you don't say, well, I chase people and send threatening emails. You say, I'm a lawyer. So, because in our world where we often, we often tie uh, the question of who we are, our identity, with what we do. So, what do you do? So, who are you? I'm a lawyer. I'm a doctor. I'm an accountant. I'm just a receptionist or I'm just a stay-at-home mum. We so often tie our identity to what we do, which means if I have a more prestigious job or if I earn more money, then we're really somebody. Then we'll be really valuable. Then we'll be really contributing and then life will be more meaningful. That's why being at the bottom is so unprestigious and many people aspire to go to the top. Now, a classic example of this is when in one of my uh, all-time, one of my all-time favourite films, um, *Legally Blonde*. Now, this film exposes how we often draw the wrong conclusions from external appearances. Yet, a subtle message of this film, like our society, is that you're only a worthwhile person if you achieve great things. Now. Without going into too much detail, I'm sorry, there's going to be some spoilers here, but the film has been out for a while, so if you haven't seen it yet, I'm sorry, yeah. But in the film, Reese Witherspoon's character, Elle Woods, ends up graduating from Harvard Law School as class speaker and has a job at Boston's most prestigious law firm. Now, her ex-boyfriend, Warner, who Elle calls a total bonehead, graduates from Harvard without honours, without a girlfriend and without any job offers. So, the subtle message of the film is you're a worthwhile person if you achieve academic, relational and business success. Now, author Graham Hooper in his book Undivided shares a story at a work function of how he he met a former senior executive of a large company who had recently retired. He introduced himself with the words, Hello, I'm Bill, I used to be somebody. He was now just a retiree rather than the head of a global company. Author and speaker, uh, she's not a Christian, Pauline Nguyen wrote, Do you know what my definition of career is? My career is who I am and who I want to become. I am constantly working in and on my career. It is who I am and who I want to become. And this is common in our world, isn't it? We see ourselves, our self-esteem, our self-worth, our value in what we do. I am what I do. In fact, according to Derek Thompson, who writes for The Atlantic, this idea can effectively become a religion. Work functions in place of God as our primary source of identity and purpose. He argues that this is particularly the case for the tertiary, tertiary educated people who he calls workism where work morphs into a kind of religion promising identity, transcendence and community. Call it workism. Workism is the belief that work is not only necessary to economic production, but also the centrepiece to one's identity and life's purpose, and the belief that any policy to promote human welfare must encourage more work. 
Work therefore becomes integral to my life's identity. I am my career. I don't just work as a lawyer. I am a lawyer. I don't just work as an engineer. I am an engineer. I don't just work as a plumber. I am a plumber. But can our career sustain this weight? Can we really define ourselves by what we do? Or will it crush us? World famous basketball player Michael Jordan claimed that his self-esteem was tied directly to the game. Without it, he felt adrift. Who am I? What am I doing? And in the years since he retired, he's been trying to find an identity away from basketball. Jordan stares into the mirror, wondering where to turn. And he ponders and says, how can I enjoy the next 20 years without so much of this consuming me? He ponders, how can I find peace away from the game of basketball? His self-esteem, his identity were tied to his work. His work ended and now he's not sure who he is. Is he anyone? But the life of the Christian is radically different. Rather than wanting to be somebody, you already are somebody. The Christian's identity is found in Christ. And this theme is found throughout the scriptures, but consider particularly the exhortation in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and following. So if you've got a Bible there, flip to 1 Peter chapter 2. And we're going to spend a little bit of time there now. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 and following. 9 to 12, we're really looking at in this, uh, this part now. Here, Paul, Peter makes a statement of identity. Who are Christians? Well, look at he says in verse 9, but you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. This identity is corporate. We as a body, we are in Christ. But it's also individualistic as Peter goes on in the next chapter to use individual examples to explore the implications of this. So this identity of who you are, regardless of your circumstances or performance, comes from our new birth into a living hope, which Peter describes earlier in 1 Peter 1 verse 3. And this process of rebirth comes from the great redemption that's in Christ Jesus and his resurrection from the dead. This brings a new, clean, fresh identity in Christ as part of the people of God. This is now who we are. And Peter then goes on in verse 11. He says, Dear friends, or I urge you as aliens and strangers in the world. Again, this is connected to our identity as aliens and strangers. Now, according to one commentator, an alien implies a clear distance in relation to society, a distance from its values, its institutions and politics. So being a Christian creates distance from society. So as an alien and a stranger, essentially that means that you're different. Now when I was nine years old, I moved to the UK with my family and lived there for three years. And I remember going there to primary school there one day and my school friends, my English school friends there accused me of being an alien. Now I denied it. I didn't want to be an alien. I didn't like it. I wanted to be like them. But it was true. I was different. I was an alien. I was an Australian living in England. 
My difference was rooted in my identity of being Australian. Now, there were times when this identity was particularly helpful during successful Ashes campaigns, but I was still different. And this is how Christian believers are. We see ourselves in our identity in Christ before we see ourselves in our vocation. And we are going to be different. I heard another story of a man in Pakistan when asked how he responded to the question of who who are you? He would respond with first, he would say, I am a Christian. Because for him, being a Christian was foremost who he was. His primary identity was being a Christian and he saw himself that before anything else. And this impacts our self-esteem and our job satisfaction. So will you be satisfied with yourself if you only reach middle management or you never work for a top tier firm? Will you be satisfied with yourself if you've lost your job? Or if you've lost your job yet your friends and neighbours still have theirs? Or if you keep missing out on promotions that you feel you deserve? Or you never win employee of the year? Or if you never even get a full-time job? Appreciating our identity in Christ means that whether we're in senior management, you work for a top tier firm, you work for the government, you work for a not-for-profit, you're at home, you're retired, you're unemployed, you are all part of God's chosen people, a royal priesthood, someone belonging to God. You still have significance, meaning and value. You are somebody. This is liberating. For unlike Pauline when we don't need to be frantically trying to create the ultimate career or identity for ourselves to become significant or important because we are already significant and important in Christ. Now, there's nothing wrong with achievement or success, but if you think you're going to define yourself through them, you're deluding yourself. Viewing ourselves as our work will fail us and ultimately crush us, as Michael Jordan will testify. Christians are different. We're different at the level of who we are. We're valuable and important because of who we are in Christ. An alien and a stranger belonging to God. We are different. And once we appreciate and internalise this concept, this one thing, It will transform our lives. Now, I just want to try something now. I realise it's early in the morning, but I want us to shut our eyes and just to look inside. Look deeply to who you are. Just maybe shut your eyes now. You will open them again, I I hope. I'm not sure this is is not permission to have a nap. But just think about yourself. Think about your work or your lack of work. Just pause. What drives you? Why do you work? What motivates you? Think about your successes, what drives your successes. Are you trying to prove yourself? To whom? Look deep. Consider what are your concerns? What are your insecurities? What worries you? What things keep you up at night? What are the things you fear? Do you fear losing your job? Do you have a fear of rejection? A fear of not being a success, of not being the best? Not being respected? And if you fail, if you make a mistake, what's at stake? Maybe you lose a job, a contract. What about self-doubt? 
Bring all these insecurities up. Reflect on what drives your fears and insecurities at your work or your lack of work. Insecurities about returning to the workforce. What sort of job might you get? What will work look like? How will people look at you if you're not at the top or if you go bankrupt? If you stop working or if you're maybe just a mum? If everything goes wrong and you lose everything, who are you? But you are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. You are God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved. In his great mercy he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. Remember, this is new life. The old is God. It's okay to fail because you're forgiven in Christ. This is the heart of redemption and the message of the cross. Okay, so you can, you can open your eyes now and reflect. I hope that was exercise was, was worthwhile to just to ponder and consider ourselves and who our identity, where we find our identity in Christ. Because remember that Jesus is more than just your new boss. You are his child, as we sang before in that song. Deeply loved, regardless of what happens to you or around you. If you are a believer, this is who you are. Now, the reason I wanted to spend so much time thinking about identity and why this is important is because how you see yourself will impact how you live. So, Kate Middleton received etiquette lessons before becoming Princess Catherine because being royalty changes the way you sit, stand, hold a teacup, eat meals and get in and out of a car. So how you see yourself impacts how you live because being part of the royal family, identifying as a royal, changes the way you live. And apparently um, when you're a royal, not that I've never had to do that, uh, you never use a fork as a scoop and you never hold your glass out for a refill. So I don't know if that's attractive to you or not, but that's what it means to be royal. Let's consider, I don't mean to pick on lawyers, there's not too many lawyers around, but they're easy target. So if you say yourself primarily as a lawyer, then how will you live? You know, like a lawyer first, so perhaps, you know, opportunistic, overcharging, arrogant and drive a BMW 5 Series? Or as a Christian first? So how should a Christian lawyer live? A Christian plumber, a Christian engineer, a Christian teacher? Look there in 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 11 and 12. We live differently. We live as the royalty we are. Remember verse 9, we are a holy, royal priesthood. And central to this life of holy difference is verse 11. Abstain from sinful desires. Now this contributes to the holy life in Christ such that Peter exhorts believers in verse 12 to live such good lives among the pagans. And living like this will mark us out as being different like aliens and strangers. But we can handle difference because we are secure in our identity in Christ. We know we're going to be different. If you're insecure in your identity, then you won't be able to uh, be different or stand up for what's right. Because if you know you're different, you'll be less afraid of being different and you'll be able to take criticism or even financial penalty. And being secure in our identity in Christ by being born again gives 
Christians, the Christians that Peter addresses here, ability to withstand persecution and opposition. Now, Peter describes here this new life in Christ means abstaining from sinful passions. Now, and these sinful passions, what he means here, the, the underlying uh, concept he's trying to get here is really seeing humanity for what it really is, without the inhibitions of social respectability. And the particular emphasis he has in this particular passage is sinful desires which are self-seeking, lustful, and the thought of their satisfaction brings carnal pleasure. Now, they certainly contain some sexual overtones, but not exclusively so. So, what it means is no responsibility, no rules, sex, drugs, alcohol, perhaps the life of, say, a backpacker. It's the lives, perhaps, of people that we work with at times. Because I'm sure that many of our colleagues and people that we work with live outwardly respectable lives. But when you dig a little, sometimes the respectability is just a veneer. Underneath, we see humanity for what it really is, slavery to sinful desires. I knew of someone travelling on a work trip who was criticised for not joining his colleagues at a strip club after work. Or as a young office worker, I was once shocked when I saw one of my uh, male senior married managers walk into an interview function with one of the senior female team leaders. And I remarked to someone in my team and said, oh, that why have they arrived together? And my colleague responded to my naivety and he says, well, because they're having an affair. I was shocked, but I, I shouldn't have. Because in a data recent survey found that nearly a third of respondents admitted to having an affair with a co-worker where one person involved was married to someone at the same time. These kind of things is what Peter specifically warned against here. But, but sexual temptation is not the only sinful desire that we're to abstain from. Of course, one of the, the clearest and simplest uh, desires is filthy language, refraining from swearing. In fact, a colleague of mine once noticed that I didn't swear around the office and he felt the need to apologise before uttering an expletive. So a typical conversation in the office would go like, oh, the guy in claims was a, sorry Robert, and then say what he was going to say. So purity in language is a very simple and distinctive way of standing out in the workplace. But is that it? Not swearing and not sleeping around. That's the extent of the impact of our new identity, of our new birth in Christ. One somewhat cynical friend of mine once I once knew said to me that that was the, all he sought. All, all he saw. The only difference he saw of Christians compared to the world was that they didn't swear and they didn't sleep together before getting married. That was the extent in his mind of Christian distinctiveness. And I thought that was incredibly disappointing. Something's seriously wrong if that's it. Because the new life in Christ is far more extensive and far more penetrating than not swearing or sleeping around. Go with me to Colossians chapter 3. If you want to flip with me just back to Colossians chapter 3, um, which is a couple of um, books earlier in the New Testament. Colossians chapter 3. And I'm going to just read Colossians chapter 3 from 1 to 17. I just want to spend a few moments here before we finish up. Um, and he, the, the rationale, the logic of what Paul is saying here is exactly the same as 1 Peter 2. Identity, who you are, leads to ethical action, impacts your life. Paul makes three statements of identity and status in verses 1 to 4. We have been raised with Christ, we are in him, uh, sorry, our life is hidden with Christ and Christ is our life. Our identity is caught up with Christ, we are in him, we are united to him. And because of this, the ethical exhortations follow. Because you've been raised with Christ, verse 2, you are with him in the heavenly realm. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. Because of who you are now in Christ, 
You live like that. And this, in this vision of the heavenly life, uh, sexual passions and swearing are there, but the list is far more comprehensive. And we could spend all day uh, thinking about the ways in which each of these virtues and vices have been dem- can, be, can be demonstrated or removed in our work context or wherever. But I just want to pick out a couple um, that we could uh, highlight right now, which I think would be quite relevant in our current circumstances. In Colossians 3.12, um, you can see that Colossians 3.12 says, As God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness and patience. So you consider patience. It's nestled there at the end of a wonderful list of virtues. But indeed, patience was actually the hallmark of the first Christians. In his book, The Patient Ferment of the Early Church, Alan Crider explores the historical data around what the early church was like and why it grew. There are numerous factors, but Crider focuses on a neglected one, patience. Crider makes the case that patience was a distinctive characteristic of the early church. A church under threat on the edges of society acted with patience, especially towards those who opposed them. And it got noticed. The early Christian author Tertullian explained it like this. Patience attracts the heathen, recommends the slave to his master, it adorns a woman, perfects a man, it is loved in a child, praised in a youth, esteemed in the aged, in both man and woman at every age of life, it is exceedingly attractive. Patience is not inaction, but patience recognises that God is in control and that we have a living hope. Patience is also related to gentleness, which I think is one of the forgotten fruit of the Spirit. It's hard to be gentle and impatient at the same time. So consider Proverbs 25.15. Through patience a ruler can be persuaded and a gentle tongue can break a bone. The image is striking, isn't it? The hardest part of the body, the bone, is broken by the softest, the gentle, patient tongue. And I think patience is extremely difficult at the moment where life is so uncertain and we want things to get back to normal as quickly as possible. Yet we can reflect on God's sovereign control and we can be patient that things happen in his time. Then there's kindness. I heard this wonderful story of kindness earlier this week when a student went into a a 7-Eleven. The man in, uh, in front of the queue was getting quite frustrated that he couldn't buy toilet paper. Perhaps it's a familiar story for us all. The student then said to him, oh, well, swing by my place and I'll give you some rolls. The man did and said to him, so why are you doing this? Well, they got talking and now they're reading the Bible together. That act of kindness had a great impact on that man's life. So consider how we can be kind in our current context to those around us. It's challenging because we're socially distant, but it doesn't mean that we still can't be kind. And Paul also calls us to be compassionate. And as you start thinking, these virtues here are all interrelated. You can't, because it's hard to be a compassionate person because compassionate is connected to kindness, which is connected to patience, which is connected to gentleness. Because it's hard to be a compassionate person if you're impatient. The virtues of the Christian life are interrelated and consistent with the characters and virtues of our God in heaven where we set our hearts and minds. As Paul describes, these are the clothes we wear. So wear these clothes. We don't do these things because they're techniques to win people to Christ uh, or they're rules to follow, etc. We do it because it's who we are. An alien and a stranger living the new birth 
in Christ. So living a good life in Christ as aliens and strangers means a deep transformation of everything we do and think. We display Christ to the world through our conduct, not through our rank or role or coffee mug. Now, it's certainly tough to be different. There are many pressures to conform, but resting on our firm identity in Christ as aliens and strangers, Christian believers are called to live differently. So as we finish up, may I just maybe ask you where you are to get your phones out. Um, this is maybe a little bit radical, um, but just get your phones out and I'd like you to set a little reminder. Choose a time on, say, tomorrow morning, uh, say, uh, whatever time, say at, at 10 o'clock or if you're a uni student, maybe midday or 3 o'clock in the afternoon or something, whatever you're likely to be up. So get a little, um, put a little calendar reminder. Just put a little calendar reminder on your phone saying, who are you? God's special possession. Just a little reminder. Say, who are you? God's special possession. So perhaps then, uh, so then uh, a little pop-up. So whenever you're doing, at that particular time tomorrow morning, it'll remind you of who you are in Christ. May this remind you that you don't need to prove yourself. You don't need to be afraid of failure. You don't need to conform to all the pressures around me. Remember that you're not valuable and accepted because of the things that you do that you're loved even if you don't have a job or life is uncertain. We can live who I am, a life abstaining from sinful desires, a life that means that I know who I am in Christ. I will be patient, I will be kind, wherever I am or whatever I do, I belong to God. I am dearly loved. Life is not empty. I am somebody in Christ. Amen. Thank you, Robert, very much for for sharing with us and their wonderful words in this season. And I pray that you will go into this week knowing that you are in Christ. If you place your faith in him, no matter what happens, the things around you don't define who you are, but simply who you are in Christ does. I pray that it gives you hope. But you might be watching today also and you might be saying, well, I'm not in Christ. I I haven't placed my faith in him. I want to encourage you in the midst of this season to place your faith in Jesus Christ. I want you to know who you are in him. In John, we read, to all who believed in him, in Jesus, and accepted him, he gave the right to become children of God. They are reborn not with the physical birth resulting from human passion or plan, but a birth that comes from God. So if you're here today and you haven't placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I want to urge you and invite you to accept him. I want you to come to know who you are in him. That's done by placing your faith in him. And I want to pray today for us before we go. And I want to also invite anyone who, who just feels challenged or I'd like to invite you to place your faith in Jesus Christ here today. In the midst of all this uncertainty, place your faith in him. Know who you are in him. Let me pray. Father, we just want to thank you for this time. We thank you for the words that Robert has shared. We thank you that we can find ourselves in you. Lord, that our identity is not connected, Lord, to the things that we do. But Lord, our identity is simply found in who you call us to be. A possession, Lord. A child of God. 
So we pray, Lord, that right now by your Holy Spirit you might just remind us to our very core, Lord, remind us again that we are yours, that if we place our faith in you, Father, that we are children of God. Give us hope and security in that truth, Lord, in the midst of so many things that are uncertain. Lord, I also think of those who haven't placed their faith in you. Lord, I pray that today they may may find hope in you. And if that's you today as you're watching, as you're listening, maybe there's a desire as you've been listening to want to know that hope and to know who you are in him, well, I just invite you right now to simply place your faith in Jesus Christ. Say these words, Jesus, I believe in you. And I place my faith and my trust in you. If you prayed those simple words, then know this, you are a child of the King. And I pray that you will know the very real presence of the Holy Spirit right now. Lord, for each of us now as we go into this week, we thank you that your Holy Spirit is with us, that we are yours. We give praise in Jesus' name and all of God's people say, Amen. Thank you for praying. Thank you for joining us. Now, you're in your lounge rooms, which again gives us a unique time. Before you run off and just do something or stop the kids from breaking something, to take, to, oh, actually, yeah, stop that first, then come back. Just take a moment to turn to the people beside you, if they're there, and just share what thoughts have been going through your, your heart and your mind this time. And then take a moment to just pray together. Encourage one another in this time. Uh, while you can. You might want to get a cup of tea while you're doing that because you can. (laughs) Um, But otherwise, thank you for being with us. Wonderful to have you here. Keep in touch, like we mentioned earlier. Otherwise, we're back here, God willing, next week, continuing our live streams. Thanks for being with us. Thanks again, Robert, and God bless you all. Thanks.